Welcome to the podcast we call We Can Do Better, where every week we go on a trip through the news that might have slipped through the cracks of the mainstream media, but has just as much value to you and I. Who am I? My name is Connor Van Vos, and I will be your host of this and every episode to come. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, this week, I want to give a quick shout out to my friend, Tori Grant. Uh, he has blessed us with some new tunes for this episode and for the rest to come. So thank you very much. I'll be linking you to some of his music shortly to come. But again, I want to say thank you, Tori, for giving us a little bit of swag for this show. Um, another thing I wanted to mention before we start this episode, I usually do try to refrain from talking about news that is very mainstream so i know it will be a little frustrating for both you and i when we do have very prominent news stories that are breaking uh the point of this podcast is not to cover all of the breaking news it is more to give you a focus of ongoing stories that are going to play a large role in your and my lives moving forward here So um, I really wanted to cover the story, developing story in Iraq and with Iran, but I'm going to go ahead and let that one play out a little bit to see what gets swept under the rug. So that way I can go ahead and uh, help inform all of us about some of the things that the mainstream media has missed. And I'll be uh, actually talking about the mainstream media a little bit more later on in this episode. But um, we got a lot of news to cover ahead of us today. So uh, let's find out how we can do better. All right, so this first news story uh, today is coming out of uh, Israel. Uh, This story is going to be involving the uh, third election that is going to be happening within uh, one year's time of the first round of elections to decide on the new prime minister of Israel. So uh, many of you may know who Benjamin Netanyahu is. He is currently the longest serving prime minister of Israel since uh, they began a parliamentary uh, government and state. Um, So he is actually going on his fourth uh, term as prime minister. And the way that the parliamentary government works is a little bit different than what we have in the United States. But pretty much this government is made up of not just two political parties. It's made up of lots of different political parties. And it could be anywhere between three to 10 to 12. There's this government is designed so that way. If there is one major ruling party, they will have a say of what election gets pushed forward, kind of like how the United States has Democrats that control the presidency, the uh, House and the Senate, then they would have what we would call a majority and they would be able to push forward whatever legislation that they want. Now, the way the parliamentary government works is that if no party has a single majority what they have to do is they have to come up with what they call a coalition. So this would be different political parties who have similar agendas and similar values coming together to put forward uh, legislation and not only legislation, but they'll actually put forward a prime minister. So that's where the term prime minister comes from. This is someone who is just, uh, they're just a representative of the parliamentary government, just like anybody else, but they were voted to be the leader of the majority coalition or the majority party. And so that's where uh, Netanyahu finds himself. And he's the longest serving prime minister for Israel. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is this is uh, the over the last uh, two elections, they were unable to decide on a majority. So what that means is that no party won a single outright majority enough to control the government and elect their own prime minister. But in addition to that, the uh, representative bodies and the parties in the uh, in this uh, parliamentary government 
did not come to terms with each other to create a coalition that would have a majority. So uh, what this means is that there is no prime minister just yet, and they're going to have to go forward to another election. So that way the nation will have to vote again for the representative, and then they'll eventually decide on who's going to be the president inside of that legislation. So the issue with this is the main uh, opponent to Benjamin Netanyahu, who uh, is uh, what they w- what you would call kind of the opposition leader, uh, his name is uh, his name is Benny Gantz, and so he actually had a deal in place with Netanyahu, where he his coalition party, or I'm sorry, his party would go ahead and step aside and allow Netanyahu to come in as the uh, prime minister again during this last round of elections. However, Benjamin Netanyahu said no to this, and the reason for that is because of the caveat or uh, the catch that Benny Gantz put on his uh, his. Um, his vote to uh, allow Benjamin Netanyahu to do this. And the reason for that is because what Benny Gantz wanted is Benny Gantz wanted Netanyahu to relinquish his uh, uh, executive immunity in the ongoing trial that he's in. And not just one trial, these are actually three cases of uh, misconduct. And uh, the three cases involve uh, accusations of fraud, breach of trust, and bribes. And they've actually developed to the point now where Benjamin Netanyahu is facing indictments in these three cases for these crimes. And one of the crimes that he is facing involves uh, accepting uh, improm- uh, uh, improper bribes and improper favors from uh, international and uh, domestic uh, individuals and businessmen. But also it's, a, it's a kind of ironic because uh, one of the cases involves a accusation of Benjamin Netanyahu contacting a uh, domestic uh, journalism agency and offering them uh, significant uh, cooperation if they would publish articles in favor of legislation that would hinder his political opponents. So pretty much he's going to news organizations to try to change the way the news portrays uh, portrays their Republican democracy, or sorry, the parliamentary democracy in favor of what he's doing. And so there's three indictments facing him right now. And um, so the reason that this is uh, interesting and the reason why this is important is because of how precarious the Middle East situation is. And I know many people have this kind of idea of how precarious it all is. But just to add a little bit of context, we're talking about the future leader of one of America's closest, quote unquote, allies in the area. The reason I say, quote unquote, is because they're albeit no country has uh, one specific uh, agenda and no one country is perfect. But uh, Israel, uh, some estimates say that they're responsible for over 2,500 Palestinian deaths just in the past 10 years. And uh, these uh, tensions are escalating with Hamas and Gaza uh, continuing to escalate the tensions between Israel and the deaths are very lopsided uh, against the Palestinians and Israel is uh, completely in control of how they decide to direct their foreign policy. And so um, this next uh, election is going to be very important for the people of Israel and uh, the people of the Middle East as well. So that's why we should all keep an eye on this because of America's close ties and this being one of our allies in the area. And if you want to read more about this, you can go to uh, NPR who did a really good article on this as well as uh, Vox.com. They did a, a great article on this as well. Right. So the next story I want to talk about is uh, with this new year uh, coming to an end, we actually had a uh, end to our the most recent uh, financial quarter. Uh, and by that, I want to go over some of the campaign finance uh 
finance results. Um, specifically, I wanted to go over the fourth quarter fundraising numbers for the Democratic candidates and uh, kind of talk about the significance because it's really it really is uh, staggering how much money is involved in politics. And for one specific reason, let me just go over all of the Demo- some of the headlining Democratic fundraisers with the number one being Bernie Sanders, who raised uh, just over uh, $30 million. I want to say it was $34 million. And then you had the next uh, in line was actually Pete Buttigieg, whose fundraising numbers came in for the, just this last quarter, coming in uh, right about $25 million. And then Biden just next after that, coming in around uh, $23 million. And so uh, the thing that I kind of wanted to highlight with this is it's pretty amazing how much money is being contributed. And albeit usually what um, campaign and uh, political strategists look at when they're look, trying to assess a candidate's strength and how well their candidate is doing. They'll look at how much money they're raising. And uh, the th- reason I kind of wanted to point that out is because it really isn't exactly representative of how much of a following or how well a candidate is doing just by looking at the finance numbers because it gives you a part of the picture. But you've seen people like uh, Beto O'Rourke who set uh, one of the records for, or he actually did set the record for most money raised in a Senate campaign when he was running against Ted Cruz back in uh, uh, 2018. But um, in addition to that, I mean, we had Kamala Harris who was raising uh, over $10 million uh, during the third quarter of last year, and she ended up resigning uh, and uh, stepping away from her campaign just because she didn't have the momentum that she felt she needed to compete. And um, that's why I think that it's a little bit misleading to look at the uh, quarterly uh, fundraising numbers. But in addition to that, I think it's uh, it is very threatening to our democracy. And by threatening, I might be using a uh, the wrong the wrong word for that because uh, we are currently in a f- phase of our democracy where money does completely decide the uh, turnouts of elections because money really can pay for your way to play. And that's what we see with these billionaires coming into democratic contests with uh, just their own purse being able to bankroll their entire campaign. And one uh, one reason I want to kind of highlight why this is so threatening is because uh, there uh, there is another candidate that you might have heard of for this upcoming election. I try not to speak of him too much in this podcast because we already hear enough about him. But uh, just to put it in context, Bernie Sanders raised... Uh, 30 around 30 million dollars between 30 and 35 million dollars this past quarter donald trump raised 46 million dollars in the fourth quarter and uh, his campaign says that to start this new year off he has 103 million dollars on hand to spend this year that's 103 million dollars that is going to be spent on advertisements on campaign and the reason why he's able to raise so much money not only is he the incumbent president but he has the entire republican national committee at his hands and at his disposal to help fast track his infrastructure for raising that money and just to be clear i don't believe that we should have privately funded campaigns we should not rely on civilians to encourage candidates to run by giving them money. Andrew Yang had a very good point in the last election or in the last uh, Democratic debate where he was talking about the reason why on average men, specifically white men, are the number one donors for Democratic um, campaigns is because they're the ones who have the most disposable income. People who don't have disposable income, people who don't feel represented represented in Democratic processes, they don't contribute. And it's uh, 
it's pretty embarrassing that we have to rely on specifically people who have disposable income to be able to put forward candidates who represent our population. And so, I mean, not only that, but then once you do start incorporating money into politics, then you have people like President Trump who are able to give crazy bailouts for uh, uh, through tax incentives and tax breaks to major corporations to earn them more money who will kick that money back to him so that way he can continue doing this for years to come. And so it's 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 cyclical. It's a downward it's a downward uh, spiraling um effect that money has on our uh, democracy. But if you want to read a little bit more about the fourth quarter fundraising numbers, you can go ahead and check it out at Washington Post. I'll be doing a lot more um, on campaign finance and on uh, the civic engagement process of trying to get voters turned out. That's actually what I'm emphasizing my personal work in, and uh, you'll hear more about it to come. I promise you that. But uh, that's what we have for today. And uh, again, if you want to read more about it, you can check out the Washington Post. So this last story, uh, I do, uh, I do kind of want to incorporate sports into this podcast more and more. Sports, uh, I grew up around sports. I always played baseball. I played soccer. I, I mean, I never co- played competitive basketball or football, but I was, I mean, I've, I've played sports my whole life, and so I do, I do love a good sports story every now and then. And uh, this one I want to talk about is because it, it really it really uh, kind of shocked me. I mean, it's something that I guess I inherently knew, but reading it the way that I did on uh, ESPN.com was really something else. So this story is about uh, some of the highest paid state employees in each state. And uh, the way that that ties into sports is you probably could guess by now, all of the highest paid state employees in almost every 50 state is a athletic director or a coach of a basketball or a football team. Out of the 50 states, only one fifth 10 states have their highest paid employee as a non-athletic centered profession. So what that kind of, where I want to start with this is I want to start with, for one, I appreciate that the states are emphasizing putting money into athletic programs because they, I cannot deny that there are innumerable ways that athletics help people help children specifically develop skills that they will use for the rest of their lives. By no means throughout the rest of what I'm about to say, do I want to, do I want to give the impression that I am against sports and schools? What I am against is I am against paying coaches for specific programs at specific schools, more money than the teachers and the faculty who are responsible for having an impact on the rest of the student body. Because let's say you have 53 players on a college football team. And of that college football team at that school, let's say that school has an enrollment of about 30,000 people. So you're saying that of the 53 students, they are disproportionately getting a higher paid, and by that I mean higher qualified person to have an impact on their lives. So what you're doing is you're catering to this specific sport. And I understand that that's because that's how the revenue is coming in. Because if you have a better coach, then you're going to have a better team. You have a better team. They're going to win more games. You win more games and you have more exposure on a national stage. 
that's all fine. But what we're not talking about is we're not talking about the teachers and the students in that relationship that all the other students have in that school. And I'm not taking anything away from the qualifications of the rest of the teachers. But what I'm saying is, is that one thing that a capitalist market and a competitive market will tell you is that a higher paid teacher is going or a position that offers a higher wage is going to attract higher quality candidates. And so with that, why wouldn't we try to attract the highest quality talent for areas that aren't athletics. We should be focusing our institutions on providing quality education to all students, not just a quality experience to bring in revenue for the student athletes. And again, I wanna end with saying I'm not against anything about college sports other than, I mean, things that we'll probably talk about later. And I'm not, I'm not out to, to say that we shouldn't have college sports. But what I am saying is I think there needs to be a, a redistribution of how we spend our money and how we, um, how we prioritize what's important in uh, post high school education. Finally, today, I kind of want to go over something that's been on my head a little bit. And as, uh, as 2020 comes around, I think it's going to be important for all of us to keep this in mind. And it's the uh, it's uh, I, I wanted to title this episode something clever and catchy. And what I came up with is uh, this episode is going to be about the mainstream media. And uh, I want to go over really what the mainstream media is built around and how they make their money and what kind of content or what uh, what kind of uh, content, excuse me, they're going to be putting out. So, uh, lights, camera, attention. That's really what they're focused on. The mainstream media outlets, and you, I'm not going to have to identify too many of them because you can think of who they are. You can imagine what it looks like. They're built to attract attention. They are not built to put out a quality product, except for the quality product being something that can bring you back. So one thing that I love about the news is I love like the knowledge that you can gain from it. I love the awareness and the, um, the uh, I mean, honestly, even just the self-consciousness that you can gain from knowing what's going on in the world around you. I'm not in love with the packaging, though. Too many times I've turned on the TV and I've seen people just screaming and yelling at each other and insulting each other and uh <laughs> just a barrage of derogatory comments and uh, attention getting lines. And I just, I, I can't imagine that this is where the news is supposed to be. Really what the news does these days is it brings drama and confrontation to the news just for entertainment. And really that's because we know what sells. We, we as a society, we love turning on the TV and we love watching the desperate housewives or the real housewives of Atlanta. We love watching sports for the drama. We love watching um, The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. Like We love these shows built around drama and, uh, and very um, emotional human experiences. And so that's what the news has learned sells and gets people to come back. And so that's what they put forward. And they uh, disguise it as providing some type of uh, news service to everybody. But that's not really what it is. The mainstream media, they're going to 
play you exactly what they think is going to bring you back tomorrow. Because that's how CNN and all these other companies, they make their money. They don't make money by giving you the facts. They make money by bringing you back day after day after day. So that way you sit down and you watch people yell at their <laughs> yell at each other through your TV. And then in between that, they make money off of selling you advertisements. And they make money by telling you, hey, if you want to go watch more of this, go check out our website online, where then again, you're going to be exposed to more advertisements. So these, these platforms, they're not really meant to to educate you. They're meant to really make money off of you. Uh, they used to say like with newspaper, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, now it's if they yell, it sells because that's really all it comes down to. You get you what you do is you pin two people up together and you get them all riled up with a story and then you go ahead and let them fight each other over a uh, a uh, altruistic battle of who is not only right, but who is morally right. And uh, really, at the end of the day, it's it's embarrassing because as a society, I do feel like we should be educated, but this doesn't help educate people. What this does is it, it provides people another form of entertainment, which if that's what gets you to come back to the news, I guess that's better than nothing. But at the same time, I think there needs to be some type of journalistic responsibility on these companies and these mainstream media platforms to prioritize giving people a quality product that educates and passes on knowledge as opposed to creates pe- creates a identity and a culture of confrontation for the sake of confrontation and furthering the divide that the two political parties have. And the sad part about this is, is the reason why it continues to divide people is that companies, they don't need everybody to watch their shows. They don't have some type of like pass or fail within their company that says, if everybody doesn't like what we have to say, and if everybody doesn't watch, then we fail. What companies need is they need loyalists to keep being loyal. And the way that they do that is they create themselves an identity. They find a base, they, they, uh, they find a niche and then they, they preach to the choir and Fox does it. CNN does it. MSNBC does it. All these companies, they find their audience and what they'll do is they'll keep feeding you exactly what you want to hear. They'll keep triggering you emotionally with the stories that they know will catch your attention and invest in making sure that you come back tomorrow just so that way they can keep making money off of you. And that's one of the that's one of the reasons why I believe that the this president ended up winning election is because he played the mainstream media so well and knew exactly what they wanted because that was his business for a long time. He played the masses and he played the card of the mo the entertainment mogul who knew exactly what to say, how to say it and how to keep the tension on himself all the time. So that's what I really want to do with this podcast moving forward is not necessarily follow exactly what's going on on a 24 hour news cycle and to follow exactly every detail of every story. What I want to do is I want to spread a little bit of knowledge because it's not about what's happening in the moment. It's about what's developing for the future. Because if you really have to react, it's too late. What you should be doing is you should be planning not only your life, but just everything around you in a methodical manner. So that way, the news that you take in, the actions that you take, are not reactionary. They should be preemptive. They should be planning towards putting you in a position where you don't have to react because you are already prepared for the exact situation that you're in. And that's why I think it's so important that we keep that in mind when we're talking about the mainstream media, because they are all about reactionary journalism. But what I want to do with, especially with this podcast is to let you know how things are setting up. So that way we aren't surprised when we see headlines like 
United States launches launches airstrike at a Iraqi uh, <laughs> Iraqi airport, killing Iranian uh, general. Because had we seen this coming through the various news stories that were leading up to it and some of the past comments that the president has made, we would have taken action to prevent that. But that's for another episode. I want to thank you guys again. Tori Grant, I want to thank you very much for blessing us with a little bit of tunes and we have more stories ahead. Thank you again for listening and uh, come back next week to find out how we can do better. Thank you.